Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Andrew Holly. He's the Chief Marketing Officer at Binder. Binder is a global leader in digital asset management. But on the conversation today, we talk about personalization and whether it's the right to move for marketers at this point in time, whether making those investments in technology are the right things to be doing, given the duopoly in Amazon that has increasing capabilities to do personalization. And we talk about what consumers really care about, which is a theme we've had on this podcast before. Lastly, Andrew gives us some tips and advice for his fellow CMOs. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Andrew Holly. 
Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. I'm curious. You grew up in Georgia, I believe. How did a Georgia guy or Georgia boy, as I should say, end up in Boston? Yeah, I think there was always some gravity for the Boston area. It's uh, even though I did spend my whole life until college in uh, in Athens, Georgia. You know, Boston is where my parents were after college. That's where they met. So you know, we took vacations up there. There's always a little bit of gravity up there. I think. Uh, exerting itself. And then, you know, when I got accepted to college up there, there's, as you know, 30 odd colleges up there. Uh, it was a fantastic place. And I really uh, just never list, left since I graduated. That's awesome. And Athens is a fun town too. Uh, in Georgia, were they educators, professors? I'm just curious because the college town. Yeah. Great guess, Alan. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I feel lucky to grow up in college towns. They're, they're fantastic. Athens is a great place. My dad was a uh, professor of, uh, anthropology there. And uh, my mom's a psychologist and it was a great place to grow up and, you know, went to school and uh, met people who grew up in other towns like, like Austin, Texas or Madison, Wisconsin, and found that I think any college town like that's a really fun place to grow up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about your path to Binder and how'd you make your way there to be CMO? Well, I've, I've been really a bit of a growth company junkie. I mean, helping, helping scale up marketing organizations is my jam. It's the seventh growth company I've been a part of, fourth as, as head of marketing. You know, coming out of college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I got into management consulting, which was just a great introduction to business. And I, I'd see small upstart companies really overturn industries. And that got me interested into kind of, you know, startup and growth companies. And once I got there, really just fell into marketing. It's just, uh, I don't have to tell your listeners, it's just a really rewarding and intellectually stimulating part of an organization that's constantly changing. And so I've just uh, feel lucky to have kind of found something that I really, really enjoy doing and have at least some modicum of talent at. <laughs> I like it. What does the company do? Tell us a little bit about your company. So Binder's in what's called the digital asset management space. And uh, so Binder's a SaaS platform that lets marketers get more usage and impact from their creative assets while at the same time keeping everything on brand. So it starts from kind of, you know, streamlining the creation, the approval of assets, then really it's the place where a marketer can organize and manage those assets. And then more and more crucially, it then connects to all the downstream systems and people so that people can find and utilize those assets they need for campaigns and things like that. So you're working kind of at this nexus, if you will, of creative assets and their use. Um, curious what your thoughts are on the trend and push to a little bit more personalized marketing. So as yourself and lots of the guests you've had on the show, Alan, like we learn from the companies we do business with, right? And so, you know, Binder's lucky we work with 1,800 or so just really great brands and we're seeing what they're doing. And I've, I've really been struck by the emphasis I see now in storytelling and, and creative. And it's prompted us to think and, and realize that maybe, you know, after a couple decades, the high watermark for a real obsession with investing in data and personalization, the high watermark might be in view. I think many marketers may be seeing less and less return from that extra bit of investment in, in, in personalization and, and micro-targeting and that you know, marketing attention may be beginning to return to our roots in, in creative and, and storytelling and the more emotive side of the game. 
Yeah, it definitely has been a theme on a, on this show. And there's many reasons, I, I guess, that are, are driving it, right? Like there's one that, that you just exhaust your, your advantages at some point in time as you get more and more and more targeted. Maybe in the B2B world, you could go further because the customer lifetime value is that much higher than in the consumer world. But then consumers, I think more recently, if you think about the things like that are happening with Facebook and the boycott because of the platform itself, but consumers are worried about privacy and it feels a little creepy at times. Yeah, for sure. Those are two of the, you know, I think contributors to this, this rebalancing, maybe we could call it Alan. And, um, you know, you had a great segment a little while back with Bob Hoffman. I think, what did he dub it? Uh, surveillance marketing. I thought that was a, that was a pretty, pretty apt term. And yeah, there's real, there's real backlash, you know, on the, on the whimsical side. I'm sure you, like me and everyone else, has a personal story of, you know, personalization gone too wrong, right? Or do you have, has this, surely this has happened to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most recent example, I can't remember the exact product, but my wife and I were talking about something. She, I look for it on the web and then the next thing you know in her uh, Instagram or Facebook feed, the ads for that product start showing up. Cause it, so they're obviously targeting our home IP address, not knowing which device uh, was the original device that was looking for the thing, but she's worried that our you know home speaker is listening to every conversation. Well, they are. <laughs> <laughs> she's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. For me, it's the it's the Hawaiian shirt ad that's following me across. It's that zo- the zombie ad, right? That's been following me across the internet for three years, even though I don't own any Hawaiian shirts anymore. Uh, yeah. So there, th- that's and that you know that kind of consumer backlash has. You know, it's one thing with boycotts and, and consumer power, but it's also now manifesting itself in the legislative realm. You know, first in Europe, right, with uh, GDPR, but now with the um, the CCPA here in the states. And not many companies here in the states don't do business in California. So I think it's it's that consumer backlash now also expresses regulation, right? And uh, so I think that's a big cause. But so is that first thing you mentioned, right? This that kind of natural decline in incremental ROI as one invests more and more in uh, one set of strategy. It gets harder to kind of squeeze more blood from the stone as we segment deeper and deeper costs rise to create the creatives needed to support that segmentations while the audience of each micro segment shrinks. So it's got an inherent sort of limiting factor on incremental ROI. Again, no one's going to argue that being relevant to our consumer, to our customers, not important. It's super important. And it's fantastic, this 20-year run, what data has allowed us to do here. Again, I think it's more of a rebalancing as the limits of that ROI come into focus. We can rebalance our attention to storytelling and creative. Well, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the tech stack, if you will. And does it, you know, there's been so much investment frankly, for marketers to invest in you know, their DMP and all of the various, I'm going to use old school terms, hoses and wires that connect everything together. It, does it make sense in your mind to continue to invest in those personalization capabilities given kind of this, like, this rebalancing, if you will? For sure, it depends on where one is in this journey, right? And if, as we've all been part of uh, dealing with MarTech vendors, right, they'll they'll show maturity curves, you know, and kind of depends on where we are. So obviously, again, we want to be relevant, and that's really important. But I think if you look at the end game, the online duopoly are going to Google and Facebook, and probably Amazon, if you start thinking about kind of product selling, they're going to be able to, at the end of the day, handle targeting and personalization better than just about any of us who don't have the resources and data of a Walmart or a Capital One or a Bank of America, 
Google, Facebook, and Amazon, they've got the data. They've got the algorithmic teams, which get better and better based on the amount of data you have. And increasingly, right, they've got a hammerlock on the value chain and can write the rules about what we can and can't do as far as personalization and segmentation outside of their worlds. So just look no further than Google finally really deciding, okay, we're done with third-party cookies. That's going to really restrict the ability of, of other kind of MarTech solutions to do things that Facebook and Google will continue to be able to do. So at the end of the day, I think they're going to be best placed to do a lot of the deep personalization and targeting work that today lots of brands invest their own MarTech capabilities in. It all makes sense to me, you know, not to mention like we've talked about, which is the frustration on the on the fact that consumers for this hyper targeting when it, especially when it goes rat badly. How do you think about the impact on your customers or or other consumers that your you know your clients are serving? Well, again, it's it's personalization and targeting is good. I think um, you know a great example would be earlier at an, when I worked for the Martech company, we had product that helped deliver really relevant marketing message. So an example would be a printer manufacturer. Then you, you buy a certain type of printer and they know how long those typical printers work on a set of toner. And they're able to push an offer about a toner refill at about the right time. And that's actually really convenient. And so when personalized marketing is done well, it can feel like a service like that. I think just the issue is it often gets taken too far and you know, we we joked about the zombie ad, right? The Hawaiian shirt. We, you you kind of joked about the um, the case of mistaken identity, right? Of you versus your wife. There's all these others. So in so many cases, it comes across wrong. And I think maybe one way we can think about it is just to be is really not think about so much what we can do, but think with empathy about our buyer, about our customer, and and what truly you know works for a long term relationship. And in some ways, and I'm not the first to observe this. In some ways, Martech personalization and performance marketing, it's all about trying to recapture that experience of being known by your corner grocer. What's the kind of relationship we would like to have with our friend, the corner grocer? And and maybe that's what we should seek to kind of build you know more at scale, but not beyond that. Yeah, no, I love that example because it at the end of the day, if you if you did think like that corner grocer, I think it could be a great filtering mechanism, frankly, for how we approach personalized marketing and whether we're, we're truly adding value or whether we're being creepy <laughs> in the process. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think, I think, you know, marketers can learn this. Another example from, from my history and some of the other marketing technology from other companies I've been with is, um, you know, event-driven marketing for banks where, you know, that the bank marketing stack knows the instant I, as a, a bank, as a consumer, deposit an unusual amount. Let's say I drop in $30,000 when they're used to more seeing my more regular paychecks, right? And bank knows that instantly. They would love to grab that and maybe put it into a deposit account, right, where it would be sticky. Or, or maybe that's a signal that I'm about, I'm about to buy a house. So, you know, it was very easy to have technology that could see this and allow the banks to act on that. But they very quickly knew, found out that calling that person five minutes after that deposit hit the system was a horrible idea. It made them feel spied upon, right? Much better was to reach out a day or two later with a general inquiry, just checking in what's going on. That was much more likely to lead to a discussion about potentially helping with a mortgage or a savings deposit. So, you know, I think we have examples of 
of people kind of realizing that empathy. So it, it, it's doable. Not everyone, you know, is, is irresponsible. Yeah. How do you, if you're advising other marketers, what do you feel is the right move for marketers? You, you, we talk about this rebalancing. Is it getting back to the creative side of the equation? Well, I think so. And, you know, I'm, I'm always hesitant to to advise other marketers. Just you've, you've got some brilliant folks on your podcast who I think are really have had some great words of wisdom. But I think speaking partially from personal experience, I think it's 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 easy to get bedazzled by MarTech and data, right? I mean, we go back to that old apocryphal hack of, I know half my marketing is wasted. I just don't know which half, right? So, so marketers have always sought, have battled this kind of perception that at some level we deal with, with the unknown because we're dealing with human psychology. And there's a comfort in as we've gotten data and data has, has helped. But I think you know, at some level, does the, the quest for data and certainty and performance marketing do we become like the person who's looking for their car keys under the streetlight? When investing more in brand and creative, or at least having a balance of that, it may be harder to prove, but just because you can't prove something doesn't mean it's not there. So again, I think it's just to, to be mindful of maybe some certain systemic bias towards looking at answers and data-driven performance marketing, and to just recall that at the end of the day, brands win because the stories they tell and the way consumers identify with them. Yeah. Well, I, I like your your nod to the fact I simplify it to say that, you know, there's where I put my message and then what I say as the effectiveness equation, right? And we've spent so much time, I think, in the last few years on the where I place it, not what it is, and focusing back on the message. Exactly. And I, I sat in a... Um, Facebook did a, a webinar on marketing data science uh, in, for a European audience back in June. And I was struck by something they said early on in that webinar where they cited a... Um if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Nielsen Catalina study that looked at kind of the, the elements that contributed to ad performance and 56% of ad performance driving sales for mobile and online video ads that they studied, 56% was determined by the quality of the creative. So by far the majority of that, it just really struck me and that even in this digital day and age, again, it, it, the story 
probably matters more than anything. As you think about it, what, what do you see as the role of technology in supporting this like creative role? Or is it at odds with that? rebalancing? Well, certainly, as we discussed earlier, the the ability to segment, the ability to do multi-channel marketing and get messages across a variety of channels, the ability to test a bunch of things has put an enormous burden on the creative side of the house to come up with the creative needed for each of these cells, if you will. You know, we need a hundred variations of kind of a campaign theme right now. And that's put a huge burden on the creative side of the house. I think a neat thing that's starting to happen, though, is that because a lot of that variation in size, if you will, for the different size of kind of online banners or localization or creating different variations for testing, a lot of that is pretty minor change. It's becoming automatable. So technology is starting to be able to help the creative side of the house in a similar way that technology did so much to help the performance execution side of the house. So I think with creative automation, we may be able to kind of lift some of the the grunt work burden, right? And really free up the creative side of the house to spend more time on the value add of of, of storytelling and and coming up with great creative. So I I hope that that's going to be something of a rebalancing for the tech stack helping out a little more universally. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. I could definitely see, you know, taking an asset like a video and using technology to help automate the cut down process, if you will, or the you know, breaking it into smaller vignettes, potentially. So that makes Exactly. That's not the huge value add for a lot of the brilliance that we have on our teams, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I, I mean, most creatives would hate to sit sit there and cut their work up too. <laughs> like uh, to your point, it's just not it's just not value add, right? Like it's it's not the creative process. Um, it's the the other end. I mean, having having the the you know the woman who created the brilliant campaign spend time coming up with a hundred variations. That's killing a fly with a, with a sledgehammer, right? Just not not fit to purpose. Not not to mention maybe killing the soul of that creative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no doubt. So. As you think about, I mean, you're a CMO at Binder. What advice do you give other CMOs? And and don't cut yourself short. I know you did a little while ago, but you, I mean, you've got some interesting thoughts. You're you're functioning in this technology space, and you're a provider, if you will, to marketers and creative organizations. So, just curious, what advice you might give to another CMO? Well, first things first, and and it's all about the people, right? Like, strive to hire people better and smarter than yourself and give them the tools to win. It's, it's a truism, but every, every experience I have just serves to, to reinforce that. Uh, I think the second thing is, as we talked earlier, I think in marketing, it's just so easy to be kind of sucked up in the hype of technology and vendors and to, you know, you have that fear of missing out, but to try and set that aside and really look at what at what matters for for your brand, kind of set that aside, if you will. Seek to measure, but don't be obsessed. Just because it can't be measured doesn't mean it's not true. And uh, get more sleep. <laughs> I like, I like, I especially like. I mean, I like all of those, but the sleep one is uh, is very important. And um, the more executives that I interview, the more that I realize that just the basic taking care of yourself is a huge component of being successful. It is, especially I think in the realm of creativity. And I'm really worried about that these days as we work from home and the line between work and not work is fuzzy as one side of the bedroom, right? And so I think I worry about this a lot now of kind of self-care, sleep, exercise, those sorts of things, which in the long run, you can't, we can't be creative without. Uh, I agree. Well, 
One of the things we love to do on this show is get to know the person behind the microphone. We, we know you grew up in Athens, Georgia, and, and had a connection to Boston all along. But I love asking this question that's next, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are? I think actually my parents' professions had some impact on me. As I mentioned, my dad was an anthropologist. You know, my mom's a psychologist. And at the end of the day, I think that's some reason why I've ended up in marketing, which is, you know, all about listening, understanding motivations and decision making. To me, that's some of the most interesting part of the job. And I think I must have absorbed that interest through osmosis in my young days. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned it earlier, I had this vision of growing up with Indiana Jones and Freud as my parent. <laughs> and uh, it could be very exciting and very uh, reflective at the same time, I guess. But I yeah. did enjoy, my dad used to take me on uh, his digs uh, and I did used to really enjoy being able to sit in a pile of dirt with my Tonka trucks as they dig a site. I do have some pretty fond memories of that. Yeah, yeah. If I could come back again as a, another human being on this planet, I think anthropology would be one of the things I would be most interested in. He, my dad, really enjoyed what he did. He, he never was a never an, a minute of doubt about it. He was he found his groove and he ran with it. And really, it was very I think satisfactory professionally. Yeah, for and for me, it would merge the the psychology aspect, like what do, what did individuals do, but also the community, the sociology aspect of like how how groups you know, function. So anyway, I'm nerding out now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a separate podcast on that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Next question. Like what advice would you give your younger self if you're starting all over again? Network more, network more. It's just so hard to do that steady background work of staying connected with people, meeting new people, you know, when you've got deadlines and a job to do and trying to advance within a company. But it just, again, it, Every year that goes by, I realize more and more it's just life is about the people. Life and career are about the people. And I think the other thing is I to have just trusted my instincts earlier. You know, I think just self-doubt prevented me from maybe kind of pursuing things that I kind of knew in my bones were the right direction to go, but they didn't kind of, you know, go for it much as as much early in my career when, you know, before you've developed the experience. So I think, yeah, trust my instincts a little bit more is what maybe I would tell my younger self. Yeah, that makes sense. And I wholeheartedly believe in the network more too. I mean, it's as you move up the ladder, it's really who you know, not what you know. And you're in Boston and the that whole area, frankly, to me has always been really even more important to to network because um, it's a very, even though it's a large city and large metropolis, if you will, of many small locations, it's very tight. It is. It's, it's your... You're always kind of stumbling across the same set of folks, which is which is comforting. It it you know it feels like a it feels like a community. I love that aspect of it and and the help that I've been able to get from mentors, people in the past, and now I really enjoy trying to pass that along and you know help others out. It's uh, it feels great to be part of that community. This is a kind of a silly question, but I really enjoy where it goes some days. <laughs> What's been the most impactful purchase of say a hundred dollars or less in the last six to twelve months? You know, I think I'm actually holding it in my hands. <laughs> I've got this little back scratcher. You ever seen these things? It's a little kind of piece of metal with a handle on one end and a little bear claw on the other one. And just, you know, every once in a while you get that scratch in the middle of your back and here's this hundred year old thing that does it brilliantly for five bucks. Right. 
No, those those things can be uh, can be exceptionally valuable. I think I haven't shared mine, but along those lines, there's probably a, a lot of a hundred dollars or less. But very similar to what you have you ever seen? Like either you can get a lacrosse ball, or you know sometimes they sell these little massage balls, if you will. But they're basically a lacrosse ball. But you can get out a lot of knots with those things. <laughs> ah, I've not tried that. My daughter's a lacrosse player. I've got a half dozen of those downstairs. Yeah, if you like, especially if you're thinking about your back, right? You've got like a shoulder blade muscle that's back there and you can't get to it. You lay down on that lacrosse ball and kind of move around until you find that sticky spot and it'll just, it'll just work to release the tension. So it's a great, brilliant. And I'm sure we've got, a, I'm sure we've got some, some brilliant marketers who are selling lacrosse balls at a 500% markup as back therapy. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're definitely out there. I'm sure. <laughs> so, well, uh, two more questions for you, more on the marketing side of the equation. If you, you step back, what are there brands or companies or even causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of? So I've got a brand on my mind that I'm just trying to figure out. And I just can't help but feel there's a, there's a lesson here if we're willing to kind of shield our eyes and suppress our gag reflex. I'm really interested in the marketing lessons from Donald Trump. How do you explain the fanatical loyalty of so many of his followers despite abhorrent behavior, disastrous policy, lunacy levels of egomania? There's something there, right? That, And I think the key is this concept of costly signaling theory. It's kind of a geeky psychological concept, but the I think the fact that he was willing to violate so many political norms, gave, conveyed a sense of authenticity, right? So I think that's part of it, the way Nike backing Colin Kaepernick at some short-term cost displayed their commitment to their values in a way that a vapid blog post can't. So I, I think, you know, what are the branding lessons and the loyalty lessons of Donald Trump? It's the phenomenon is so powerful that there's got to be something deep seated there if we can just hold our nose and think about it. Yeah, I think you're very onto something. And um, frankly, we have conversations at my house about it too, because you keep scratching your head. I mean, I grew up in North Carolina and, you know, I'm sure a lot of my friends from early days are Trump supporters. And I do scratch my head going, I don't quite understand why this person is the brand of the president for our country that you would want. But then at the same point, to your point, like, you know, the mistakes that he makes or the bumbles here and there, you know, sometimes very disastrous and, and things you cringe at, but they engender loyalty. And uh, there definitely is lessons to be learned. And he may, not, he may not be a brilliant politician, but he's a brilliant marketer, I think. That's right. I, there's got to be. So I'll be curious, Alan, check out this concept of costly signaling theory. I'm sure you can, I'm sure it's on Wikipedia. And um, see if it, if it resonates as kind of a, you know, a partial explanation. And uh, maybe next time you talk with um, relatives, see if that uh, sounds true to you. Yeah, I will. I will. I'll check that out for sure. Well, last question for you. What do you feel like is the biggest opportunity or the or threat to marketers today? I think it's actually kind of related to what we were just talking about, the example of kind of, of, of Nike. And it's, you know, how do we as brands in an age of social media, in an age of, of authenticity, how do we share ownership of the brand with our customers, right? We're not 
good brands aren't fully in control. Consumers, customers co-own them with us, but that they, how that actually should work out, I think, is not yet settled because there's just so many examples around us of good, of handled well and handled poorly. I, I think that's one of the most interesting questions for marketers today. Yeah, no, I I agree. There's a actually I'll point you to like I'm blanking on the name of the book right now, but the author who's been on the show and he's a friend of mine is uh, Peter Horst, and I think the name of the book and I'll link to it in the show notes is Marketing in the Era of Fake News, and he may not get into necessarily the co ownership piece. But it does, and I love the frameworks and the examples he uses because it, it does help you figure out like how far do I go? Like how far should my brand venture down this path into either making a stand or helping someone make a stand, maybe in the in the notion of Nike, you know, or Patagonia for that matter, as another brand that's gone pretty far, versus when is my head in the sand like an NFL in the same equation? And so anyway, I'd point you point listeners and others to to that book just as a starting point. But you're right, like figuring out like how to co-own your brand, because ultimately, you know, if we're being true marketers, right, the brand is something that resides in other people's heads. It's not on our piece of paper. And by its very design, it's co-owned. But how do you help them design it, if you will? (laughs) That's so awesome that you brought it. A, gave me my next book to read because I'm about to wrap up one and I need one. But also you brought it back to, um, as soon as you said, you know, the, the brand is in our, the buyer's head. That's just, that's straight out of one of the Trout and Reese, right? 22 immutable laws of marketing. So I think it's just, you're spot on with that. Andrew, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun, Alan. Thanks. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.